Hey everyone, this is Maeve here from Gals Getting Rich. Before we hop into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment and ask you for your support in nominating Gals Getting Rich for a Plutus Award. The Plutus Awards are put on by the Plutus Foundation, which is a nonprofit community foundation whose mission is to enable and support content creators to then empower humans with financial competence and confidence. This year, Vata and I are really hoping to be nominated for the following categories. One, Best Personal Finance Content for Women. Two, Best New Personal Finance Creator Audio. And three, Content Creator of the Year Audio. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast and mine and Vatsa's overall mission to educate and empower all people in their personal finance education, please consider nominating us for those three categories. It would mean the absolute world to us. Link for nominations will be in the description below. And with that, let's get right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Gals Getting Rich. Today is a really special episode because we have our first ever guest on the episode. We have Jay Millennial. Jay Millennial is a money expert working in cybersecurity, investing in real estate, and he's a lover of all things Maseratis and bubble tea. So thanks for coming on today, Jay. (laughs) Quite the intro. Thank you very much for the intro. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no. I've been following you for like two years because I made my Instagram account in like 2021. And I think you were one of the first people I followed because I went on my wealth diary and I followed everyone she was following and you were one oh, of them. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her account is what like really inspired me. So. Yep. She's a good friend of mine. Um, glad to see that she found me through her. <laughs> yeah. Weren't you coworkers at one point? Actually, no, it's a common uh, perception, but we both worked in big four before. So I would Mm -hmm. say we were rivals because she was working in one company and I was working in another. Oh, okay. Got it. So I wanted to talk to you about your Instagram account. And I think you said said in your post that you started it in like 2018. Is that right? That's right. Yep. January 2018. What made you want to start your account? So I wanted a way to have an outlet to show what is possible in terms of wealth building. I feel like um, there is a time and place for things. And I believe that the time someone told me, hey, you've been posting a lot in your personal account about this and this. Why don't you make it a separate account? And I was thinking, sure, I think if it benefits a lot of people in the future, it'll probably be well worth it. It's not for me. I don't really pitch things that I sell or anything like that. It's just a matter of saying, this is where I was, this is where I was at this point, and this is where I am now. Awesome. And like, how has your account benefited you? What has been the biggest change in your life? I think the biggest change is accountability. And it's showed me I've been from here to here in a certain point, and I've gotten from here to here at a different point. And I would say it kept pushing me to want to find the next thing to do. And I would say that could be a benefit, but it could also be a drawback because sometimes you get pushed too far because you're because I was thinking to myself at one point, wow, I earned this much at this point. I got to keep at least beating that. So mm-hmm. in one sense, the benefit in one sense, maybe a drawback. So how do you stay consistent? You're always posting on your stories. Ah, well, I just find time for it as an outlet. I would say that 
the people that I'm engaging on a daily basis have really been keeping me on the tip of my game here. And I really thank everybody for doing that. If it weren't for these people that keep engaging me, I would probably be like, uh, just going to step away here. I think one thing you're good at is always responding to people. Anytime I DM you, I know you're going to respond to me. Yes. And I try to do that to everybody. And I get at least 20 or 30 a day. So I'll schedule a time and then be like, I'm going to respond to 20 messages and see what happens. <laughs> well, got to put it in your Outlook calendar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who are your favorite people to follow on Instagram or well, in one general? Of them, yeah, My Wealth Diary was one of them. It still is. Uh, Flips for Miles. He's been one of friends of mine. He's in the Amazon FBA. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking of others. Uh, her first 100K is interesting because she provides some opinions. Uh, Personal Finance Club, Millennial Money Veteran. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, <laughs> the list goes on. Uh, there was one called like My Ninth Fire Journey. And I, I believe she was posting some really good content at some times, like some basics, but I don't think she's around that much. Oh. Um, there are some others like then save for it, but I think she's gone as well. But it's it's been rotating because sometimes I uh, follow people here and there, but those were the main ones that I've been like keeping tabs on all the time. Oh, one last okay. one is Lattes and Leases. Oh, uh, yeah. She's very good, yeah. Interesting. What about Henry? Do you follow Henry? Henry? Oh, the high earner, not rich yet, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I do. Um, that one is so 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 insane to follow but yeah yeah, absolutely yes i feel like that's the most like uh scandalous one the one that gets like the most engagement Mm -hmm. um so i always ask people if they follow henry i feel like henry my wealth diary everyone follows absolutely yeah yeah and personal finance club so um okay just a quick pivot i want to talk about your career so can you just tell me a little bit about your job? I know it's in cybersecurity at a big yep. four, right? Uh, it wasn't a big four, but I've positioned myself elsewhere since then. Okay, got it. Yep. Okay, so tell me about it. Yeah, so what I do is I assist in the life cycle of building out a cybersecurity program from A to Z. So at this point, I would consider myself like a leader of an organization that comes in to transform their processes. So like... Mm. Um, I'll have some organizations that say, we don't have a program. I'll have some that say, we need to optimize our program. So what I do is I come in, do some rearranging of, hey, maybe this person will work better on this side, or maybe we need to have this other capability come in to make it stronger, or just look at specific target areas of the cybersecurity program in general and see how can we make it better with what we have. Hmm. That's really interesting. So you were a consultant the big four, and now you're like really a consultant analyzing organization cybersecurity. Yeah, and I would say um, when I was in Big Four, I was focused on a particular area of cybersecurity, and I feel like I was pigeonholed into there, so I decided I need to step out a bit. Got experience in other areas from like threat and vulnerability, um, identity, software development, all these other things, uh, physical, and then piece them all together, and that made me who I am. So you said on another podcast that you picked cybersecurity to maximize your career earnings and you got like all the certificates you needed. Is that right? And can you tell me about that decision to do cybersecurity? Yes. Yeah. So in cybersecurity, I would say not just maximizing earnings, but because it's a passion of mine. And I think that finding passion in an area that just happens to be growing is a very good way in like data science or programming, and then just being the best that you can at it. 
So maximizing earnings mainly because I looked at it initially as a path where the trajectory just kept on going and it looked like there was no end to earnings. Some make upwards to a million and most will at least hang out in the $400,000 range mid-career. And I decided between software development and security, I feel more passionate about security than I do software development. So just really hopped in there, look at mm -hmm. the certifications and the earning potential of the people in these different certifications, then decide to choose that route. So do you have any regrets about cybersecurity? Absolutely not. <laughs> I can talk <laughs> about it all day for hours on end. Really? Yep. Oh, so what is like your work-life balance? Like, are you working nine to five or do you work outside that? It's hit or miss. Um, most days I wake up around 7.30 and as soon as I wake up within 10 minutes, I'm working. And that will typically go until 6.30. Depending on the rigor of the project, or the you know how messed up an organization can be in a certain area, I'm mm -hmm. probably spending upwards of 16 to 18 hours in a day, but I, I thoroughly enjoy it still. Um, sometimes weekends, but I wouldn't say every single weekend I'm working. But uh -huh. when everything's going well, it's typically like 7:30 to 6:30. That's really interesting. So I my career I picked selfishly for the money as well, mm -hmm. and I would say I'm passionate about it, but I'm not like as passionate as you are about cybersecurity, but I studied physics and I wanted to be a researcher and I got to college and I saw how little they made. So I had to like make a pivot. I was like, I can't do that. All of a sudden my passion wasn't like enough to keep me there. So I just think it's really awesome that like you found your passion and you found a way to maximize your earning potentials there and you stuck with it and you like expounded upon it. Yeah, and likewise, I think about your path there as well and trying to pivot to a way where you still enjoy what you're doing enough to get into mm -hmm. it. Yeah, definitely. So I was also looking at your Instagram and you seem to make really decent money flipping scooters, TVs, <laughs> doing the side hustle. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, that is a fun side hustle. So I ended up choosing that side hustle because um, my partner, who I call Mystery Girl, she yeah. told me, hey, it looks like um, we, you could potentially make money here and it looks like something you enjoy because I was just like buying something at a low price and then selling it. And I was thinking, ha, 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 that's pretty cool. I've made $100 <laughs> and then just call that a month. But mm -hmm. she's like, no, 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 this is something. Let's see if you like it more. And then I ended up making 5000 the first year. And I think last year was like almost 10000 And what's interesting about this is I turned something that I thought was like, just buy low and sell high into buy what I really like low and then sell what I really like high and then keep rebuying it and keep reselling it. Like TVs and scooters and Xboxes and Playstations and Oculus devices. I'll literally like buy something after I set an alert on it, see like an Oculus for a hundred bucks and, re and realize, wait a minute, this can sell for 200, just wipe it when I sell it and then buy another Oculus so I, I have like this endless stream of Oculuses coming into my house, wow. which I play with every single one of them. But I think I've made thousands of dollars just owning Oculus devices, buying and selling them. And mm -hmm. I have the same games on the same accounts and everything and just keep loading them, keep selling them, keep wiping them, and then just redoing the process. It's fun. Wow. How do you find time to do this with your job? So I think alerts are a big part of it. Um, OfferUp and Facebook Marketplace are very good places where you can set alerts on stuff. Like I'll put Oculus keyword and then I'll put less than $150. Mm -hmm. 
anytime wow. I see something that meets that criteria and it's like within 10 miles of me, I'm going to go there on my free time, pick it up and then come home, play with it for a bit, relist it as I'm playing with it. And wow. then someone will say, hey, you know, I want to buy this. And I'm like, okay, wipe the device, go ahead and buy another one and then do the same process again. Oh my gosh. So did you start off with TVs or did you do like a lower margin product at first and then go to TVs? The reason why I chose TVs is because I saw popular things and OfferUp and Facebook Marketplace will tell you TVs are popular and gaming consoles are popular. So TVs, high turnaround, a high lot of people selling them. They're always postings for them. There's always people searching for them. And Facebook will tell you people are searching for TVs. So that's why I started with that. How did you learn what is a good TV and what's a bad TV? Like you always talk about like, oh, this is a good deal. This is a horrible <laughs> deal. Like, how do you know? So the way I know is because I've bought and sold so many of them. And I know what people like because when I post about Samsung's versus LG's versus Vizio's, like 50 inches, I can see the demand for one versus another at the same price point. Oh, and also, what has a higher demand? Just curious. Samsung's and LG's. Huh. Yep. Those are pretty good. Vizio's are the next one after that. And then like Hisense, TCL are after that as well. And depending on the demand, I realize that I can set one like a Samsung at 230, whereas a TCL at like 180, just because of the brand difference. Hmm. That's really crazy. If someone wanted to start flipping like TVs or anything on Facebook mm -hmm. or whichever, eBay, what would you tell them? What advice would you give? What I would tell them is, Think about something that's around your house and then see if you can just list it. Try listing it at different prices. Like if you have a Samsung 50 inch at home, list it and you're not going to sell it, but see how people offer you and see what they offer you because that will define what your market's going to look like. Take other pictures from other listings from other states and then post it in your area and then see what people are willing to offer because that will give you an idea of how much you need to purchase this at. Like if people keep offering me 160 for a 43 inch or a 50 inch, I probably want to try to buy it for $80. So then I can figure out that's my profit. Yep. How many TVs do you have in your house at any given time? Right now I have three. <laughs> <laughs> like not being used or like listed? Yeah. Yeah. Not being used, but, wow. but listed is right. What about Oculuses? I have two of them and oh. I think I have like three scooters. What does Mystery Girl think of this? She thinks it's cool because everything's in the garage. If oh. it's all over the house, uh, she's like, hey, 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 that needs to go in the garage. Got it. Yep. How did you learn how to fix a scooter? You're always posting fixing scooters. How did oh, you learn? Yes. So that is mainly a matter of, hey, I need to get this back out the door. And I have this will to learn pretty much anything. If it's about fixing TVs or phones or laptops or whatever, it's just a constant will to learn. And I think the willingness to learn drove me into wanting to fix it. And if I didn't have that willingness to learn, I probably wouldn't go out and out of my comfort zone to try to fix it. But for me, I think it's an endless pursuit of wanting to learn and then learning about it. Same thing in cybersecurity. There's always constant new attacks every single day, new ways people get into systems. And I want to get in front of that. And likewise, when I'm out of work, I like to do the same thing. And just go on YouTube, see if someone has a video on it realize, oh my gosh, this YouTube video is so terrible. I'm going to make my own process. And then you said going forward. Yeah. Wow. Do people always pay in cash or how are they paying? Yes. So I typically do cash. I try not to do Venmo or Cash App because sometimes people can charge back or use their own card. 
and mm-hmm. that just reflects back on you and you just lose the balance. And that money you're making, are you just putting that into a savings account? Are you investing? Is it TQQQ you're investing in or what are you doing? With yeah, that? so a lot of the money just ends up in VTI and TQQQ and as it comes in, I, sometimes I'll save some of that money to buy something else that's a bit bigger. Wow, like another Maserati? Is that on your horizon? That's the hope, but I have a house <laughs> build coming up, so I need to very strategically push that money towards that area, even though I really want to keep buying shares of stock. Yeah, that's my problem, is funding my sinking funds because all I want to do is invest it. I know, wow. what you, I know how you feel, exactly. Yeah, it's so hard. And I track how much I invest every month, and it's like... um. A lot of like dopamine I get from putting in my numbers. So I'm like yep. highly motivated to invest and not save. So yep. I totally get it. Yeah, it's really hard. Okay, so I want to talk about, actually, before we move on, I wanted to ask, how much have you made this year so far from flipping? Oh, I'm going to need to pull that up, but I believe it's about three and a half thousand. Yeah. Wow. So I'm a cat sitter. And I was actually the number one cat sitter in Ohio in 2022. Ooh. Yeah. And I made $4,000, just okay, over 4000 That's really cool. I I would probably do that, but... <laughs> <laughs> probably way more time consuming. Yeah, but it sounds fun. It is fun. It is fun. Except when you have to give cats medicine. That's not fun. Oh, but okay. I think I saw for one year, when you recent post, you made like 16000 from flipping. And I was like, that's literally four times what I make as a cat sitter. <laughs> but you're killing it. Yeah, I think uh, with between time commitments and everything, that's just what it is. In some years, I was not as busy as others. So I was able to focus more time on it. And I think it's time in, time out. If I don't spend time on it, I'm not going to make any money. And I think that's a, it's a kicker. But same yeah. thing with cat sitting as well. Yeah, it is. Whenever I take off a weekend, like I'm not going to cat sit Memorial Day, I'm going out of town. Yeah, um, exactly. I lose money. Like I could have made so much money. Same here. When I'm sitting on an American Airlines flight that is not on the ground yet. <laughs> yeah. Same the, deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kicker. Okay. So I want to talk about your real estate. Um, okay. And I've been following you. I think I followed you when you bought your house in Florida. That was in 2020. 2020. Yep. Right. Okay. That's right. So, and the other one is Las Vegas. How did you pick these two locations? So I picked these locations mainly because of the growth that I anticipated at the time. And also just because that's where my money was able to go. Um, In the market that I was, I wasn't able to buy because, you know, like, for example, New York and California, very expensive properties need a lot of capital to get in and have 20% down payment. I didn't have that. So I looked outside and thought, if I had a property manager manage this for me and I put that little amount of capital and whatever else needed to fix it up, can I do it? And mm-hmm. part of that is also the confidence in it because dealing with out of state, there's a lot of unknown variables, like who's going to check it out for me or what's going to happen and all that. But that aside, in, since I was in California at the time, it's easy to drive to Las Vegas and take a look at properties and do that in a weekend and come back. Whereas in Florida, it's not the same. But now that I've had an idea of how it's done in one state, I, I believed in myself and could do it in another state. So that's how I did that. Look for growth in the market, which in 2015, Vegas prices were like 100 something thousand for a house. And I was thinking, there's no way. People think that, you know, psychologically, people are going to move out because 
one place is expensive, so they move to another place. And that's what happened in Las Vegas. The house tripled. Likewise, in Florida, same deal happened. So in 2020, I bought in and, re- and was thinking to myself, I think this might have the potential, but if it does, I have cash flow. And also, both states don't have state taxes. So that really helps when I'm filing taxes and all that, too. Mm. And since you bought your Las Vegas house, the Oakland Raiders moved to Vegas, right. and now the Vegas Raiders. You got Derek Carr, and now you're getting Jimmy Garoppolo, like a really big quarterback. Like, there's just so much, like, um, like economy, so much, like, demand in that area, I feel like. So um, Las Vegas is in an interesting turn, though, because right now the market is so high, and the job market is not there to support the people buying the houses unless you're retiring. So I feel like that's the new issue because companies are moving to other states like Illinois or Ohio or Texas or New Jersey, which are not Nevada. Every time I see a company move out, I I look at where are these companies going because that's going to bring the people, which will drive the demand. And, you know, based on the median price and median income, what is the propensity for someone to buy a house in that area? So I'm actually thinking of exiting my Las Vegas property soon. Because I feel like it's reached that limit and then reallocate the money somewhere else, be it Florida or Texas or Ohio or somewhere else. Where in Ohio would you buy? I'm just curious. (laughs) Probably where Lattes and Lisa's is buying. She's very good at that. (laughs) Yeah, she. I think she's looking in. She's in Augusta, Georgia. She's in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. Okay. The job growth looks promising. They got some head news. Yep. Yeah. So I live in Columbus right now, but I'm from Cincinnati and Columbus is like so different from when I first moved here because we're now getting like a big Intel plant and it's going going to create, it's going to do to Columbus what I think it was like Dell did to somewhere in Arizona. It's like the same kind of effect they're um, expecting. Because other people are coming in and buying, which I think is somewhat unfortunate because it props up the market for the local people that want to buy in. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a tough one, and and I think ethically it's a tough one because if you buy in there, but then again, if you don't, someone else will, and yeah. it just keeps driving the cycle, so it's tough. Yeah, it is tough, and they're building a lot of homes out like in the suburbs, which is great, mm-hmm. and those will be close to the new Intel plant, but they're not, that's where the affordable housing is, and it's not close to where all the other jobs are, yeah, so yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to like be living through it. Um, yep. Luckily, I'm not trying to buy here, so I don't really care too much, but yep. crazy witness. And where in Florida is your other property? It's in Orlando, actually. Um, oh, okay. It's close to the Disney World. So I was thinking, unless Disney World exits, then I'm fine. If it does exit, I'll probably sell it and then relocate it to a different part of Florida. Oh. Why did you pick Orlando? Uh, tourism. Lots of people come in day in, day out. If the long-term rental does not work out, I believe there's a short-term rental market that can still kick in and sustain it. Mm-hmm. There are also some organizations that are moving into either Tampa or Orlando. So I see the potential there. Like I did for Jacksonville before, although I didn't buy in Jacksonville because I was scared of the flooding. Mm-hmm. So Orlando being in the center of Florida, having this growth, that for me built the recipe to make me decide Orlando is it. Got it. Do you self-manage or do you have a manager for both? I have a manager, but I feel like I self-manage it because sometimes these property management companies don't see your property the same way you do. 
they see it as I'm getting paid a check every month. So I'll look into it just at the bare minimum. But for me, I'm thinking, is this done yet? Is this done yet? So sometimes I feel like I'm self-managing it because I keep poking them to do something. Oh, I saw you flew out to Florida to go do some like upgrades or something on your own. Did you do that to save money? I did, yes. And I looked at it as a way to one, save money and two, learn something new about being handy. So one, I now have respect for handyman out there because painting does take a long time and mm-hmm. figuring out like plumbing and all this other stuff. And in some cases I would outsource it if I don't have time. But if I'm sitting on my, you know, butt for a weekend, I could probably be more productive doing that somewhere else. And I think that's part of my nature and why I flew out there. Got it. Um, so I want to talk about, I read a, an interview you did with a, the Buck by Buck blog. And you mentioned that you're really focused on earning more and not so much on spending less. And I wanted to understand, like, what's your philosophy on that? Why are you driving towards earning more? Yeah. And the reason that drives this is because I realized that college is expensive, healthcare is expensive, and the costs will just keep going up over time. I see some accounts and I don't want to throw shade at people, but when people say I'm going to hit my lean fire amount of 1 million and then quit and retire in 40,000 a year, I want to tell them, unfortunately, this is not realistic because as you get older, you're going to have more expenses or even how you define your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. For me, for example, in my 20s, I decided to stay in hostels and all that. But nowadays, I'm staying in hotels because I like the privacy. I don't see myself in my 30s staying in a hostel with people because I don't feel that open as I was when I was in my 20s. And likewise, in the healthcare side, when I get older, I'm probably going to have more surgeries or more issues happen to me that would be easily resolved in my 20s. So I need to be able to cover that going forward. And what I think is 4000 today that I feel like I can sustain myself with may not be that if I have to put a kid through college or pay more in healthcare bills and pay more in everyday groceries and all that. So I need to pad myself to be able to sustain that. At least that's I'm, I'm trying to plot for the worst case scenario rather than be lean and be short and have to go back to work. What is your fire number again? Seven million. Seven million. Okay. I was thinking 10 million in my head. I knew it was high. Have you ever heard of the book slash blog, Meet the Frugal Woods? I've heard of it. I just haven't read it. It's like that same concept you're saying, but opposite. She's all about um, cutting down your expenses as much as you can. Because not only does it help you save more, but then your fire number goes down. Mm-hmm. And the whole time, I really like books that challenge my point of view. And I was reading this and I was just like, I was thinking about healthcare costs and college tuition, like these things in our lives, these expenses that have beat inflation and that your fire number will not be able to keep up with right. at the rate they're going up. And I mean, I think she's doing well. She got a book deal. She's like mm-hmm. chilling. Wow. But um, I was just thinking about that the whole time. And I'm the same way. I would rather earn more than be focusing on spending less. And I would say for both you and I, I feel like our expenses are already pretty low. It's not egregious what we'd spend. So there's not much fixing there. You can't go down as much as you can go up. In, in right, learning. exactly. And I was thinking I could decide to sell all my houses and live in an apartment and live forever. But I, I don't see myself doing that either. I want to sustain where I'm at now and account for these uncertainties. Yeah. I also saw in the Buck by Buck blog, 
You said you wanted your fire income to be anywhere from one hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and I was thinking that's kind of a range. That's like more than twice. Huge range. Yeah, yeah. So I was just wondering, what was the reasoning for that range? So one, when I put the two fifty number out there, I anticipated, oh my, what if mystery girl wants to buy one Chanel purse per year or something like that? And I was oh. Probably the high end, you know, two fifty. On the yeah. low end, let's say she does want to go on a vacation, which is probably unlikely. Then I think I'll be fine there. But also, when I was thinking two fifty, I was thinking the future two fifty may be my current day eighty thousand. So that's what I was thinking of: is if inflation were to stay at the pace that it is today, like mm-hmm. how nineteen eighties, you're paying like you know twenty cents for a burger or whatever. I need to be able to account for that. So I think it's a conservative number given where we are today and projecting that based on previous CPI. Got it. Does Fire Girl participate in Fire? Is she saving? Yep. Yep, exactly. Does she have like a side hustle of reselling and reselling? Uh, Her side hustle is making sure the properties go well, so I don't have to think about it as much. Oh, that's cool. Because we have like these renovations and stuff that are going on literally as we speak. And she's been handling that for me, so props to her. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And I also noticed in that blog, you put your fire location as Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, or I think it was Dallas. That's where you live right now, right? Um, Are you trying to split your living between the two? What's the deal with that? Yeah, Yeah, because Kuala Lumpur, I feel like, is a central hub in Asia. You can fly from Kuala Lumpur to Vietnam or Philippines or Thailand through that hub, just like Singapore is a hub and just like Hong Kong is a hub. Except Mm -hmm. Kuala Lumpur is one of the cheapest hubs that is still accessible to the rest of Asia. And I see myself setting that as a base, as well as Texas as a base, to get around either the U.S. or Asia. Oh, are you going to buy real estate in Malaysia? 100%, yeah. Either I will rent one because the rental cost is so cheap compared to the price, or I might buy one if I see myself out there for the long term. Wow. Wow. Is the conversion rate, I know Singapore is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Is Malaysia cheaper or more expensive? I don't have it any. much, much cheaper. Okay. That's what I thought. I know Singapore is just like out the wazoo expensive. Yes. And that's like, the one that always gets me. Yeah. I, I don't see myself going there unless it's like a couple day vacation and then just fly uh-huh. back to Malaysia. Yeah. Okay. So... You posted a really interesting Instagram post on April 9th, and it's actually your number one pinned Instagram post. And after I saw that, I was like, I have to interview Jay. I have so many questions. Um, And for anyone listening who doesn't know, go to Jay's Instagram, at jmillennial. It's the first post pinned from April 9th, and Jay gives a walkthrough of how he became a millionaire by 27, right? Yes, step by step. Crazy. Does that like ever hit you that you became a millionaire at 27? It does because my initial projection when I did this back in 2018 was to be a millionaire by 32. So seeing the market forces do their thing, I was very surprised at where it went. Oh, I'm on track for 32. Awesome. So I kind of like the idea that I'm on the same path as Jay Millennial. I feel like, okay, I'm not too bad. (laughs) So, okay. I'm looking at the first page and you state in 20, what is it? 20, I'm looking for your first job. Okay. Okay. Yep. 20, 2009 yep. to 2014. 
um, you get your first job paying 65000 Was that the big four job, the first one? Yeah, and I believe that was 2014. 2009 to 2014 was just like me dreaming about a Maserati up until, you know, leaving school and then actually graduating in 2014. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yep. Just clarifying. Okay. No, I appreciate that. And was that job in cybersecurity as well? Yep, that's right. It was an entry-level development type cybersecurity engineering position. Cool. What kind of college did you go to? A public college, actually, like just a local one. I chose between that and private, like USC and Drexel, and decided I didn't see the value of going to a private school over a public school. Yeah, I think that's something where the tides are turning these days. Is I see people who are going to great high schools that are usually feeder schools into like these awesome private schools. Yeah. And they're all going to these cheaper local state schools or something just because the cost is so exorbitant. Yeah. And because when I was looking at it at the time, Drexel was like, yeah, we'll pay off your first tuition. And I'm like, great, that's 40K. Uh, How much is the rest of the tuition? Yeah. 40,000 a year. And I was, and they're like, but you can get scholarships and that. And I was thinking, what if I become dumb the next year and, don't get a scholarship, then I'm screwed with a $40,000 bill. Yeah. And that really stuck in my head when I was thinking this out versus if I go to my local state school at 6000 a year or 7000 a year, I believe. And then that would still be much cheaper than going for one year at that uh, private school. Yeah. And as long as the public school has like good connections and recruiters and jobs are looking at graduates from there, it's just as good of a school, you know? Yes. And that's what I was looking for is I went straight to the career fair websites of these public schools and looked, who is Microsoft hiring from? Yeah. (laughs) Yep. And once I figured that out, I was thinking I'm going to go to that public school. Yeah. And I think companies now are smart enough these days to realize that not all smart people are going to these Harvards and Princeton's like some smart people are also like very frugal or they're just money minded and they're, they don't want to spend sixty, exactly. seventy thousand dollars a year. It's a priority thing, right? Yeah, and honestly, I think people who are smart enough to get to Harvard but choose a cheaper school—that says a lot about their character. Yep, yep, I one hundred percent agree. Um, and so you funded your college with loans, right? Yes, I did. Yep. And how much student loans did you graduate with? Uh, twenty-five thousand. Wow. And did you pay that off right away, or how did you go about that? No. So the way I did is I paid the minimum for a while until about year three or four, I believe. And that's when I decided to pay it off, which I still think is the wrong decision because of the interest rate of the loans were like 2.9%. So oh. I think that that's something I didn't really calculate myself. But in hindsight, I'm still happy that it's paid off. Got it. So I commented on this post because you also put your age for each year and it yep. looks like you graduated early or you're young for your yes. grade. And yes. you said so, both. Yes. So what happened is um, I took a lot of AP classes in high school to the point that I was able to graduate a year earlier. Oh, okay. Well, that really paid off for you, didn't it? Absolutely. Because I saved easily $10,000 for the, between books and tuition and opportunity costs because that became a $65,000 job instead of a year spending 10000 Do you ever wish you had done a fourth year of college for the experience? No. (laughs) No. But what I do think is if I were to do that fourth year, I would have used it to get a master's. 
Okay. Because nowadays, I with my job schedule, I don't see myself going back and getting an MBA or master's. And for you now, with your current salary, the opportunity cost just is not there. It's way too high. Yes. Yeah. I cannot quit school for a year or two and lose out on six hundred. Yeah, and also I think that they say that it becomes worth it to get a master's degree if you make less than one hundred seventy-five thousand a year. You're way beyond that. Like, you know, it's right. not worth it. Right. So you mentioned also that you read an article about or, or by Financial Samurai about becoming a millionaire by 30. Yep. And you felt like you could do it. Is that still what you feel like today really compelled you to become a millionaire as fast as you could? Yes. Yeah. Looking back, that was one of the main drivers of it. And I was reading a couple of other blogs at the time as well that looked at the ways it could happen. I know for that guy in particular, he got lucky because he bought a particular stock that like quintupled overnight. And I was thinking, okay, I cannot do that, but I think I can do something else. Uh So that's when I looked into real estate and others. Now, the trick with being a millionaire today is given that Vegas market and Orlando market are where they are now, which built out a decent chunk of my net worth. The challenge would be once again, where would I buy today that could potentially appreciate that much? to pad that amount in net worth over three or so properties. And I would probably look at job prospects and all these other areas to choose that next area. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. It is kind of funny, like, um, who's that one guy, Peter Thiel, who got like $5 million in his yeah. Roth. Yep. And when you look at like, how did he do it? He just got lucky with PayPal, really. Right. And there's so many people I see who are preaching like, this is how you become a millionaire. And then you look at their their street creds and it's like, oh, you got really lucky on one thing. Right. Um, not to say they don't know what they're talking about, but it's like, I think it's just the lesson is now look in the future. How could you replicate that? What, where's the next area that's going to explode? Stuff like that, like you're just saying. Yep, exactly. And I think that that sort of luck, part of that calculated risk, is what drove that as well. Because if I were to replicate it, I could decide to buy in a certain area that just never appreciates. And that would put me in a different position today. So in 2017, when you were were around 23 years old, Mm -hmm. you started the year with a net worth of 125,000 and you ended the year with a net worth of 300,000, which Mm -hmm. is really incredible. At 23, I think my net worth was like 40. 50, 60, something like that. It's still very Um, good. It is. But did you realize at the time just how incredible that was and how far ahead you were of your peers? So for me, I didn't really think about it versus my peers. And I I never really thought about it like that. I always thought about it as a race against myself. Okay. Because I saw the charts and I was thinking, this is absolutely low. I didn't believe it, but I was thinking I'm in a race against myself, not against numbers that other people are throwing out there. So for me, I thought it's good. Like I I felt where I was was good, but I was thinking, wow, this is so incredibly crazy. I'm going to go do something else now. Interesting. So as we're going through your years, your Mm -hmm. recap, you mentioned your real estate milestones. And I was wondering, is your goal for them to cash flow or are you just trying to have value add and then sell them? What's the goal? Originally, I was thinking cash flow only, but now I'm realizing markets have certain peaks. 
And at this point, I'm thinking, what if I can put this money in an area that could potentially grow further? That would probably be a better use of that rather than peaking at one area and having it paid off and just living off that and being content. At this point, since I'm still young, I feel like I need to use this capital to keep growing rather than just stay stagnant and decide I'll just stick with this and be happy with it. So that's a turning point that I have right now with my current situation. Got it. And I think it worked out for you because you sold one of your, I think it's your primary residence to Zillow, right? (laughs) Yes, I did. And you made so much money off them. Yeah. And Zillow ended up selling that house for much cheaper than I sold it to them for, which is unfortunate. But I think the timing couldn't have worked out better in that case. So I think that's a lot part of it. Was that like um, hard for you to just like easily give up your house? Yeah, it was because I was thinking, where am I going to move to? The other prices are still high. Does it make sense? And now looking back, I looked at the value of that house versus the value of my current house and thought I made the right decision. But I think that if I had waited a bit more, I wouldn't have made the same decision and my circumstances would have been significantly different too. How much did you profit in all from Zillow? Uh, That was 380 and I bought the house for 250. So I would say about 100,000 if I were to think about my living expenses as well. And given the fact that you can exclude certain amounts from your income, that's just a straight hundred that I took. And I think I just threw that into the stock market. Man. So that also, actually, no, that was after you became a millionaire. Or was yes. that before? Yep. Okay. So, so was, you're already a millionaire. Yep. That's right. Okay. And Dallas, I feel like Dallas real estate is like growing like crazy. It's ridiculous. And I was thinking to myself, when I moved in here versus now, I think that even I'm priced out of it because of how crazy it's been growing. And like the suburbs, especially, like I'm thinking like Prosper, McKinney, the ones that are far out, but they always had affordable housing. I've seen houses that sold for 400-ish around 2018 are now going for like 900, like doubled. This is an interesting part of it too. And I think about this every day. Um, There was a house that I really wanted to buy up in Prosper back in 2020. And I was making about 175 back then, and the house was 525,000. And okay. I was thinking I could stretch and buy this house. And I think it's going to pay off because they were building the PGA headquarters right down the street from this house. I didn't buy it. Oh. That house is now worth a million. <gasps> yep. No. Yep. So I was thinking the opportunity cost of me not buying that house is 300,000 because my other house appreciated by 200 which doesn't fill the gap of 300, but it was still good. I, I still think that that's my biggest regret, but also it's a big um, it's a big risk because I could have lost my job in the same year and have this big mortgage payment to have to pay for. Yeah, So true. there's always two sides of the equation. Yeah, and at 175, I feel like you could, like by the standard rules of like, try to keep your living expenses around 30, 35% right. of your gross income. Like, I think you would hit it just about with 575, but knowing you could have exited with so much money, man, that would have been a really good Instagram post, you know? It would, yes. And at the same time, I was thinking about how to write that post because I was thinking it's it's a post that I don't want to condone either or, or say this should be advice. But 
when I think about people in like California market, like Irvine, California, which is another area I wish I could buy, there were houses that were worth 800,000 back in 2020 that are 1.6 now or even 2 wow. million. So when I write a post, I, you know, being strategic about not giving advice to say, Hey, buy that dream house you're looking for because it might appreciate, but be careful about this. I don't want to have people that come back and have an issue happen to them because of what I wrote. Yeah. Right. And you don't want that on you. Yep, exactly. And I think there's a huge rhetoric in the personal finance community that your per, your primary residence is not an investment. It's a purchase yep. that can help you build up cash savings, which I think is like true. Like it is not an investment, but with the way real estate has been lately, you don't want to miss out. And if buying this house is really what's going to bring joy to your life and make your life just better in general, then it's not a bad purchase. Right. And I think that the risk has to be thoroughly calculated before making that decision also. You know, having the right emergency fund, having the right savings, especially thinking in 2020, I've met people that lost their jobs as they were buying the house. Mm -hmm. so, and same applies in 2023. So there's that yeah. risk aspect to it. Yep. Yeah. 2023 is something else with real estate and jobs as well. <laughs> oh, yes. So, okay. In 2020, you were around 27 years old. You hit three really big milestones in that year. You went from 800K net worth to 900K, and then you hit a million. How did oh. your net worth go up that much? That was a pretty crazy year for you. Yeah, that was the market. So what happened is the Fed kept lowering the interest rates at that point. So it really sped up people's fear of missing out and saying, I got to keep buying. So people mm -hmm. did keep buying. And that was really all market. So that's what surprised me because I think collectively I had 600,000 in the market and then that went all the way to a million just in investments. And then likewise in the housing market, similar thing happened because of you know COVID, everybody's staying in. Now people are like, I have a lot of capital. Where do I want to put it? Buy houses. House prices went all the way up. And that's how I passed all those three milestones. Who do you hold your taxable brokerage with? Uh, E-Trade right now. E-Trade. Why did you pick E-Trade? Very easy to use, very easy to follow, especially for newbies. I feel like when I got that platform at the time, I looked at Scott Trade and um, Fidelity and Vanguard and didn't really understand all of those platforms. And E-Trade was the easiest to follow for me. Interesting. You're the only person I know using E-Trade. I follow JL Collins and I opened up Vanguard. Mm -hmm. So, but I feel like there's no right answer. I'm just always curious what right. drove someone to pick one over the right. other. This is a year in 2021, you made 16.5K from flipping items on Facebook Marketplace and eBay. And I think you noted that you were the top seller on eBay uh, I that was year. A top rated seller. And what that means is you sell a hundred items in a year and had minimal defects or returns. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. And so I'm just, just to reiterate, that's four times what I made as a cat sitter. So it's just bonkers to me. Um, we got to maybe get into flipping or sit four cats at the same time. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I was thinking about boarding cats, mm -hmm. but I have a cat my own and I didn't want to create drama for him. Oh yes. I totally get it. Yeah. They're kind of territorial. So but I thought that'd be funny, passive income, just like oh, have right. 10 cats in my apartment. That would be funny. Yeah, I need to find an item to flip, but it'd be really cool. Actually, I did try flipping. There's an oh. online estate sale website, and I would try to buy cameras okay. on there. 
and sell them. So the bidding starts at $0. So I try to get in really quick and just like snag it before anyone else noticed, but it didn't work out for me. Half the time, actually like 90% of the time, the cameras were broken beyond use. So. Yeah, I find that an issue because when people return items, most of the time there's something wrong with it. And that's why people return it. So I've seen some flippers locally where they'll buy pallets of TVs and do that. But you have to go through 50 TVs to get six good ones to pay off the pallet and hope that there are other six to make that pallet yeah. worth it. So right. it's, a, it's also a risk game. Yeah. I did flip two Gucci purses. So tell Ooh. Mystery Girl I did that. Nice. My margins are horrible. I think I made $30 profit. And I decided well, this is not for me. <laughs> that's interesting because if you enjoy the bag for a certain number of time and still make money of it, that's, that's still a win. Yeah, true. I didn't use them at all. I just kept them in plastic in most of them. <laughs> so it wasn't great for me. But yeah, learned my lesson. But okay, so this is the tumultuous year, 2022. You oh, mentioned, <laughs> yeah, yep, you already know what I'm about to say. You mentioned that you got greedy and that you started to take riskier moves by opening up positions in QLD, TQQQ, and you even tried day trading. Yes. Yeah, that, that was a tough year because I was looking at the 2020 chart and using that as a basis of 2022 because I saw, oh, you know, in June, market bottomed. And little did I know it would bottom even further. But of course, when, bottom, when it bottoms even further, it still happens at three times your money rather than one times your money in a typical environment. So that's a bet. And I think that that was a gamble more than anything else, which is something that to this day, I still think I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. So mm-hmm. I'm holding it to try to ride it back up to that um, to the certain amount that I paid for it because I still see the potential in it. But there are some other instances where it doesn't make sense. And leveraged funds are definitely not something to play with. There's something to really calculate and make sure they're part of your risk profile as well, which is mm-hmm. why I say I'm going in 50% in one and 50% in another. So if one fails, I still have the capital for the other half of it. Yeah. And that's a risk. I would still tell people, stay in the 1X, stay in QQQM, stay in DTI. Don't go QLD or TQQQ because let's say this week the Fed decides to drastically increase rates. What happens? Instead mm-hmm. of going down 3%, it goes down 9%. Of course, in the flip side, in the bull run market, 9%, 9%, 9%, 9%, it, it works. But in a volatile market, it is tough to predict it. And predicts, I wasn't able to do. And I lost money that way, to which right now, I think if I didn't do that, I think I would be at 1.7 instead of 1.6, which is still good because I managed the risk that way. But I think yeah. this goes back to managing the risk properly. Yeah. Because I was thinking, I'm going to sell all of my VTI and then buy TQQQ, which if I did, I would have wow. been mega screwed also. So calculated risk is very important in the game too. Yeah, that's what I always tell people is crypto isn't a bad investment, but there's so much more risk. And so you need to make sure that however much risk you have in your portfolio, you're comfortable with losing it all because you could. Yep, even like BlockFi as an example, because I had 100,000 in there at one point, and that could have all blown up with the FTX bankruptcy. So I would have been like really, really disappointed. And I know people where that's actually happened to them. So it's tough. Wow. It happened to me, but with Celsius, Celsius went under. 
but I only lost a thousand. And yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, but by the time they defaulted, my crypto was only worth four hundred fifty, so it wasn't like that much. Yeah, and yeah, in they're in bankruptcy court, and I should get my money back, but yeah. it's been like a year without that four fifty that I could have had invested. So, um. It's been fun for the ride. It's fun for the story to say like, yeah, yeah it's kind a of right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good story to tell at bars, you know. But mm-hmm. I don't. I'm really glad that my risk was so low compared to my overall profile. Like, I agree. Yep, I'm glad that worked out better than other people that I've uh, seen happen to. Yeah, man, you had a hundred thousand in crypto at one point. Yes, I did. <laughs> Were you going to buy anything with the crypto, or was it just investment? So that was actually the down payment for my next house. And oh. if I didn't cash it out, I would have lost the entire down payment for the house. Oh my God, Jay. Yep. That is crazy. I know. <laughs> it would have been pretty cool if you paid your down payment in like Bitcoin, you know? That would, it would be cool. cool. And I just imagine, let's say they default on the day after closing. I would be like, what happens to the seller? Yeah. That would be interesting. That would. Jeez. So, okay, looking back over your years from this Instagram post, I was trying to figure out what were the factors that really got you to the million dollar mm-hmm. net worth. And one of the big factors I felt like was, I identified three. First one, you got a good job with only three years of college. So you graduate early. I agree, yep. Um, I graduated, I was old for my grade. I graduated at 22. Okay. So I was kind of like one year behind you. Okay. In that instance. So, but I think that that's awesome that you graduated in three years. So that was one big pivot. And two, you were always determined to get a high salary. You never were complacent. Correct. You know? Yep. Um, I decided, you know, I had to switch jobs at the right time and look at the trajectory of where the job was going and decide to jump out because I know people that are comfortable and stay where they're at. And I think that getting out of the comfort zone and building out the skills to go to a higher place is always a tough part. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's such a toss up for people because I think it comes down to your personality, whether you want to grow your roots at a company yep. and have like a cute job with like coworkers you love versus changing it up every year and exactly. challenging yourself. Yep. Yeah. The last thing that I felt like was really pivotal for you was the timing in which you broke into real estate was phenomenal. Oh my gosh, I agree. And if I were to put some numbers to that, for example, my Florida property has accumulated, appreciated by 120000 in the three years that I've owned it. So that's 40000 a year. And the Vegas house from one hundred fifteen or so to three hundred fifteen, so that's 200000 Usually wow. that is 320000 out of the net worth, just built up that. And then my 401k, wow. I put about 160 in there and that's worth about 300. So that's 140,000 in growth. So the right timing makes a big difference because I it could have gone where I'm building my net worth today and I bought Vegas right now and Florida in three years from now. And that's the top of the market. So if people speak, I could have chosen the wrong market and then easy price gets to like 40,000. Which at this point, I wouldn't buy in either market. I probably would have bought in Ohio because of the potential and all the job growth and stuff. So my strategy would change slightly, but I still think I probably would have done something similar other than the markets that I picked for real estate. Yeah. 
That's awesome. If you ever come to Ohio, gotta let me know. I'm sure. right in yeah. the middle. I can go anywhere. In Columbus, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I go to Cincinnati a lot. So you gotta let me know. Okay. Sounds good. So okay, what is your next financial goal? Is it like two million by thirty one? So at this point I'm sitting on one point six million. I'm not as determined to hit a certain goal by a certain age. What I'm looking to do is build up cash flow over net worth now. Oh. So I've reached a point where I could sell everything and have you know, about 1.6 million and decide to call it a day. What I think is if I can have the side income replace my main income, that would put me at a lot better position. Oh. So I think about it as I'm making three or 4,000 passively, but I'm making 300,000 in a year. So 30,000, 4,000, that's a really big difference. Can I make up yeah. the Delta? We'll see. What ways are you looking to increase cash flow? Keep buying real estate, keep adding to certain positions and ultimately converting them to potentially dividends or others. But that's something to look at for the future. That's something that I'm still up in the air for me because I'm still in the middle of purchasing this house. But after that, I will continue to solidify that path. Do you make money off your books on Gumroad? Uh, this year, I've made zero because I don't oh. really push it. Um, last okay. year, I was really pushing it more. But this year, I was thinking, I'm not a salesperson. I want people to benefit from my content without having to pay for it. But of course, yeah. you know, if people pay for it, I, I appreciate that. That's cool. My Wealth Diary, not to circle back to her, but she does a great job with her Etsy shop. Yes, she does. Um, it was interesting because I was reading every single link that she had. And right before she released it, I told her, you got to secure this because I was able to find it. So, <laughs> so oh. that's, a, yeah, that's a fun side story. And she was like, oh my gosh, there's other people looking at it. And I said, yep. And I'm one of them and I'm telling you. So get rid of it and secure it and then post it when you're ready. So, oh my yeah. gosh, on her Etsy shop, you found it before she listed it. I found the actual document for that uh, template with all ah. the real expenses, and I told oh. her take it down. And I do the same thing to other people. I if I find out who they are, I tell them because I'm a cybersecurity guy, and uh, and I tell them how I found them. So, you know, just helping people out where I can. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's good to know. We were. For gals getting rich, me and Vatsa were thinking about coming up with a budget template. So maybe I have to hit you up to make sure they can't find us, even though we're not anonymous, like my wealth yep. diary. Yep. Blur the links and all that stuff and check the permissions. It's very important nowadays. Wow. Wow, you got lots of good knowledge. That's why they pay you, pay you the big bucks. <laughs> so what are your plans once you hit fire? I'm probably going to race go-karts on a track. I am going to snowboard in the winter time. I'm going to travel to different countries throughout the year as well. My goal is to spend one month a year or yeah, one month for three months in different countries around the world. So let's say Spain, rent out an Airbnb, uh, figure out if I like it, go to China, stay there for a month, go to Thailand, go to Brazil, stay there for a month each time. And then of course have my home base because that's my ultimate place of solace or maybe change it up but ultimately i want to be cultured and really mm -hmm. understand how people are around the world and also give back a bit in terms of like people in philippines or indonesia or china that are not in as fortunate situations i want mm -hmm. to be able to coach people 
And I want to be able to put people through college and see them thrive to their best. Wow. What's That's a, awesome. Yeah. The last thing I would say is there are some people that have approached me. There's this one guy in particular uh, whose name is Cedric. Uh, I remember he reached out to me on one of my platforms and said, how can I be like you in the future? And I told him, you know, I'm willing to push you through it. Let's go read your resume and all that. This guy now makes 250 a year in Amazon. And I was holy. thinking, holy Jesus, when I met you, bro, you were in high school. Wow. I've never met him in person. Oh, my gosh. Yep. What did you tell him? Yeah. <laughs> so he's a very persistent guy. So I gave him a roadmap and said, let's read your resume. Let's polish up how you say statements. Um, let's look through how you interview. You can interview in front of me and all that. So I really coached this guy from where he was in high school to building his first resume to choosing his job offer and negotiating. And I told him, let's negotiate it this way because I think, you know, they're paying you like this when you should be like this. He did it. They paid him. So I said, dude, <laughs> this is awesome. But that's probably one of my best stories. And just want to share that. Wow. That's so cool. Um, what were your favorite FIRE, financial independence, personal finance resources that helped you get to where you are? Oh, a financial samurai is a big part of it. I, I, I think that that is the sole resource. Nothing else has prepared me as much as that resource has. If I think um, about the Rich Dad Poor Dad guy, the Ramit Sethi guy, or Personal Finance Club, they're all great, but the depth of detail Financial Samurai puts in his posts really opened my eyes into what to research, how to research, and how to ultimately build wealth. That's awesome. Well, I have one final question for you, Jay, okay. and that is, how is the pediatrician's house coming along? The pediatrician's house is coming along nicely. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. For anyone who doesn't follow Jay, he always keeps tabs on this house being built that's going to be owned by a pediatrician. That's right. Right? Yep. Is it finished now? No, it's been oh. building since 2021. It's still two years in the making. Wow. Yep. Well, better be a good house. It looks nice from the outside. I'm just making sure nobody gets onto the inside and all that stuff. Just want to be respectful and make sure other people are respectful of that. But it's been fun to watch. That is so funny. Well, Jay, that's all I have for you today. Um, it was an absolute honor to have you on. This is super cool. Um, if anyone wants to follow Jay, he's on Instagram at jmillennial, spelled exactly how it sounds. And is there anywhere else they can find you? I think that's it, right? That's it, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on today, Jay. Awesome. Thank you for having me.